Hey y'all, it's Amber L here. And before we get into this podcast, I wanted to personally give you an update on a couple of things that are happening. Things that I'm super excited about, primarily because I have a heavy hand in a lot of what's happening there operationally. And I just really wanted to fill you in. Um, But first off, I want to give a big thank you to our episode sponsors, which are SIG and Element. So I try to only talk about things, products, companies that I personally use and love. I just think authenticity and transparency is the perfect form of marketing. And so I'm really excited to talk about SIG and Element today because they're both products and companies that I use and love in my everyday life. I love my 365 Spectra Comp that I use, which is SIG's handgun with the compensator. It's the one with the gold trigger, if you've seen it. And it's not just a pretty little thing to look at. It's functionality and operation is like a dream. I've used a variety of concealed carry pistols over the years, and I not only love the ability to conceal this firearm as a small framed woman, but also how well it functions. It's not snappy at all. And all of my family, when we go out and shoot at the farm, every time we shoot, they're like, can I shoot that SIG again? Because it's just a really fun gun to shoot. So if you're looking for a new concealed carry gun, I I use it as my nightstand gun and I use it as my concealed carry gun. But if you're looking for a new gun, definitely consider looking at some SIGs. And little disclaimer, you might love your 365 Spectra Comp just as much as I love it. So give that one a consideration. An element is an electrolyte powder. So, you know, electrolytes are all the rage right now. And as a nurse, I do honestly 100% love and use and encourage and recommend using electrolytes. So I use this every morning before I work out, put it in my water You don't get the cellular absorption of water if you don't have something to help it get into the cells, such as your trace minerals. It has everything you need in it and nothing that you don't. So it's not loaded with sugar. It's not going to give you one of those sugar headaches like some electrolyte drinks on the market do. My favorite is orange salt, and my kids love the watermelon salt. But I I love Element. I carry it in my everyday carry, keep it in the house by my Berkey where the kids refill their water. Um, and I have it on hand if, you know, if it gets too hot outside or it gets too cold, you lose a lot of electrolytes in both of those polar ends of, of the weather there. So keeping the element on hand for when you're out and about during weather considerations like that, especially right now, it's about to get freezing cold. Uh, it's important to stay hydrated. A lot of people only think about hydration in the summer, but it's really important in the winter too. So make sure you're getting proper hydration Try some element. Look, you can go to drinklmnt.com backslash fieldcraft and you just pay like $5. It's just shipping and nothing else. And you'll get a free sample pack, which is eight little packets of all their flavors. So it's like, take, spend the $5, get the eight packets, try them out, see if you love it. Um, and no harm, no foul, right? If you don't, then whatever, give your packets to somebody else. But I bet you will. Very salty, giving you disclaimer, it's very salty. Um, but you get used to it. All right, so the things I wanted to talk to you about, two things, programs. Listen, 2023 should be the year for leveling up. Not just watching the content, not just listening to the content, but implementing the content. So I have two programs I wanna talk to you about. The first one is called the Warrior Women Retreat. And as a, we're, we're part, we're sponsoring this Warrior Women's Retreat and you, what you do is you fly out to California, 
and you get trained up by the best in the business. That's true. That's on. That's true. I can say that, right? Some of the best folks are putting this on, training women up in the art of hunting, and it's a survival focus this time. So that's why Fieldcraft's involved, and we're super excited to be involved too. And so you get trained in field dressing, choosing the proper gear, how you can load out most effectively, like navigate all the things that go with hunting. I will personally be flying to California for this event and training you up in survival skills. If you get lost, stuck out in the woods overnight, what are you going to do? You'll learn some emergency med and there's an optional 3D archery experience that's happening on the Sunday after the retreat. Um, the retreat actually goes from January 19th through the 22nd. So it's that, that weekend. Um, it's going to be super, super fun, super exciting. I, I'm just excited to be a part of it. Um, and if you're a new hunter or you're exper an experienced hunter, you're welcome and invited. Um, so come join us. You can visit our website, fieldcraftsurvival.com, and check out Women's Warrior Hunt Retreat and see what all of that is about. The second thing I want to talk to you about is program 62. So it's a program that we just launched. Go date is January 3rd. It's a 12-week program exclusively online. We brought the best subject matter experts in for this course. What we did was we listened to people's concerns. They wanted to get started with self-reliance and preparedness, but there was so many facets. There's med, there's mobility, there's defense, there's mindset, there's um, public safety, there's home safety, there's emergency considerations, there's food storage, all the things, right? And so they didn't know where to start. So we created a course, took our subject matter experts, broke down all of the information that they had gleaned from years of training and in-person live trainings, online trainings, all the things we've done at Fieldcraft, and we created a course. It's amazing. It's all online. You show up for a live session. We give you homework. We give you resources. We tell you exactly how to do the things. And then you walk away implement and implement them. And we give you the blueprint to do that. So by the end of the 12 weeks, you've created a full comprehensive blueprint for self-reliance to move forward into, you haven't even finished the first quarter of the year at this point, and you're already all schooled up in all the things you ever wanted to be schooled up in. You can do it as an individual. We encourage you to do it as a family if you have a family um, with your spouse, with your couples, and then you take this information back to your kids and you train them up. So it's an incredible course. You get direct access to our team of instructors. We have live training, so you'll be able to ask your questions one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's going to be a great experience. So what I want to give you guys, because you've listened to this entire seven minutes of me talking <laughs> is a discount code as a thank you. And so the discount code that I'm going to give you will give you $200 off. That's both the Women's Warrior Hunt Retreat and Program 62. And it's Amber1862. Go use that code. Go check out the programs. And now it's time to listen to our very own Mike Glover. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. It's Mike G, your host. I, I don't often host Phil Craft Survival Podcast because uh, I'm doing Mike Force. I'm just doing my own thing. You guys can get uh, Kevin Estella. You guys can get Amber, Kevin Owens, some of the best. Uh, Kevin Owens is launching his own podcast. By the time you hear this, you can hear his podcast because, man, he's got a lot of cool stories that sound cool because he's got the Irish accent. Um, I have Jericho Dimon, good buddy, Black Rifle Coffee, Marketeer. Is that what you guys are called, Marketeers? Yeah, it's like the Rocketeer, but Rocket. Oh, damn! Rocketeer was such a good movie. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm starting to do like a Sean Ryan thing. Where Sean Ryan, I was Sean Ryan's first podcast. He's a good friend of mine, and he gifted me something on the podcast. 
And I was frequenting a local pawn shop, and I found a gift. Oh, for me? For you. Oh, sick. Yeah. What is it? Here we go. <laughs> I, I have been holding on to this for weeks. I'm so freaking excited about this. Jericho Dimon was a former Ranger, and this has everything to do with um, probably something you saw or never saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's I even got the price tag on it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I carried one of these on my ankle for the uh, duration of my career. So it's yeah. an Army Ranger knife. Fuck yeah. Yeah, what does it say on it? U.S. Army Ranger, and it's got some some uh, novice parachute swings, a Ranger tab, and a this fuck badass trooper with his uh, his M16A2 at High Port. Oh, yeah, I love that. It's rad. The best thing about that is it probably was at a Ranger gift shop or something like the in De or totally. Georgia. No, this was on a table <laughs> that was covered in like a blue sheet that was outside of the Sand Hill PX, right? <laughs> And there was like some old fat guy that was like, I was a sergeant major in Vietnam and he's selling these. And this is the Ranger one. There was like a Green Beret one, Green yeah. Beret one, Army Infantry one, you know, Airborne. There's got to be an Airborne. Yeah, one. an Airborne one. Yeah. Yeah. That's all yours, man. And it only cost me at a bargain. Like it smells like killing. How much? <laughs> how much did it cost? Fifteen bucks. Fifteen dollars. Yeah. I might have talked him down a little bit. I might have paid ten bucks for that. It's the best fifteen bucks you'll ever. Spend. You're welcome, man. Oh, dude, yeah. That's something that I feel like should be front and center in your in your desk. This is going up, yeah, on my desk, dude. So that people, when they walk up, they're gonna know exactly what they're getting. Keep the price. The U.S. Army too. Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. So I, I, the reason I want to have you on the podcast, and we've had podcasts on Black Rifle Coffee's podcast, and. You've been podcasted um, before, but I kind of want to do a deep dive into your war experience. We took the blue pill. Oh, we should have taken another. Oh, blue we should have took those, dude. <laughs> that was oh. amazing memory unlocks. Yeah. Um, amazing. You had a memory unlock um, of an experience we did on a Veterans Day podcast for Black Rifle, talking about you doing this long range movement and then all this stuff happening. And I kind of want to expose people to some of the things that you've been through in a series that we call Resilience mm -hmm. on our podcast. So we interviewed like Sean Kirkwood, Silver Star recipient, fifth group guy, Kevin Owens. Uh, we interviewed Mike McKnight, who's the ultra marathoner. Um, just ran 600 miles from Mexico to Utah. And I wanna walk through your personal experiences of dealing with adversity and difficult circumstance and how you kind of overcame those things. Yeah. Um, as a baseline, can you give, can you give us some context for kind of how you grew up, how you got in the military, and then what was your military experience? Yeah, I grew up, um, I was a I was an army brat. Uh, my dad served, uh, I think it was 23 and a half years in the army. He had, a, he had a decent sized break in service, but he was, I was a true army brat. He was, he was serving when I was born, um, through when I graduated, or not when I graduated, through about my uh, junior year in high school. Mm. So, you know, I had a, I had an NCO dad for, for the, entirety of my life wow um stationed at bases i assume all yeah over. so you know the i think kind of how I was, I was like molded socially was you know i i had to be a very um you know and it's one of the things that makes a good in my opinion soft guy like good team guy good ranger good whatever is just adapt adapting to your environment yeah um which every two to three years we were moving. Mm. Um, so I was the new guy all the time. So I was also used to that, 
you know, being, being the new person, having to prove yourself, having to prove your worth. Um, so yeah, we, we went everywhere from, you know, I was born in Washington, DC. I was born at Walter Reed, funny enough. And then, uh, yeah, we traveled overseas when I was like two, we lived in Korea for, uh, back then the, a Korea tour was like unaccompanied, Mm. but, uh, you could sign on for an extension. My dad was like, whatever, I'll bring my family over on my own dime. So we lived out on the economy. In like a, time a year. Where, That's a, what is it called? A hardship tour? Yeah, it's a hardship tour. But I think we were there a little longer than a year. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's no infrastructure there for families. So they, like, found me a babysitter, some Korean lady who spoke Korean at home. <laughs> so I was, like, at such an age, after a few months of living there, I spoke Korean. Like, as a fucking, like, two or three-year-old. I love that. Yeah, so I was my parents' terp. Like, they would go out and go shopping, and my dad would be like, ask him how much it is. And I'd be like, I would, I would you know... Because you're uh, a sponge at that age, you pick it, you yeah, pick it up. Yeah, so I would like do all the shopping and everything, but I brain dumped that shit. I don't know. I don't speak Korean anymore, but uh, <laughs> which I'm pissed at my parents about. I'm like, why didn't you keep me on it? Like we were in a, you know, we lived on military base. So there's plenty of like, you know, Korean wives and stuff. I could have kept kept the skill up. That would have been wild if I spoke Korean like, for no reason. <laughs> um, so yeah, from there, then uh, you know, lived lived in Pacific Northwest. My family's kind of from Oregon, mm-hmm. so. A lot of time in the Pacific Northwest growing up when my dad, anytime he had the opportunity to, he would get stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, um, just because that's kind of the closest thing to our family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I consider myself kind of a Northwesterner, yeah. you know, as, as if I'm say where I'm from. Um, and then, you know, we lived in Germany for a few years, lived at Bragg for a few years, um, Fort Sam Houston for a few years in Texas. So wow. all over the place, um, some places you know, more than one, lived a couple places in Germany. Um, so just about five years total there, uh, as a kid. Um, and then, yeah, growing up as a, as a, you know, as a little kid, it was like, yeah, I'm going to be in the army. I want to be a ranger, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, once you, once you start noticing girls and stuff like that, you, you kind of change. And so my kind of adolescence, puberty, all that, I was like sort of an artistic kid. Um, I like to draw, I still played sports and stuff like that, but I really, really enjoyed drawing and stuff. So my dad had it in his head. I was going to go to art school and, you know, be a graphic designer or something like that. But then, you know, hit that age, 16, 17, where you're like, start to butt heads with your dad. You know, he's not your hero anymore. And I'm like, I just want to get the fuck out of this house. Yeah. And uh, to me, the, you know, the fastest way to do that without being a drain on anyone was to join the military. Um, And I... You know, having grown up in a military family, the army, I knew it. It was like home. So it was like a no brainer. But my dad kind of insisted that I look at all the branches. Um, back then, uh, uh, at least according to what the recruiter told me, there's no such thing as a SEAL contract then. Like you had to go get your rate, do some time in the fleet, and then you could assess for BUD. So I was like, that's fucking out. I'm not yeah, going to do that. Yeah. Um, the Marine Corps, kind of the same thing back then. You know, it was like late 90s, 96, 97. Um, the Clinton years, you know, they weren't really hurting for people. Um, they were actually trying to downsize at that point. Yeah. So recruiting was, was, was they weren't, they weren't hurting for dudes. So it was, um, Marine Corps wouldn't guarantee you a, a MOS. They're like, you joined to be a Marine. I was like, not doing that. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, the kind of the one that I was nearest doing was, was doing the, you know, air force PJ pipeline, something like that. But it just didn't, I just didn't feel like a, you know, big, like, draw to it you know i didn't i didn't want to be a medic you know so i didn't want to be a pj um cct sounded cool but like 
even in that pipeline, you weren't guaranteed PJ CCT mm-hmm. or I don't remember what the other one, the, the, the weather guy, whatever. Yeah. Um, you just had to kind of like, it was luck of the draw where I knew, Hey, if I join with a Ranger contract, I'm going to be a fucking airborne Ranger. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and then, you know, a good piece of advice my dad gave me, my dad was serving the Ranger battalion for, you know, like four years, early eighties before they were the Ranger regiment, but he was a medic. Um, and in hindsight, I now see it was, it was sour grapes, but he was like, fucking infantry guys don't do shit. They just have to fucking carry a ruck, shoot a gun. That's all they have to do. Mm. If you're a medic, you have all this extra shit to do, you know, which is kind of true, but also not. Um, so he's like, Hey, if you want to do that, just be, just be a shooter, like be an 11 Bravo. Don't be a communicator. Cause I had a pretty decent, you know, ASVAB score joining. So they tried to talk me into, do you want to be a communicator? Do you want to be a FO? Do you want to be any these other things you can be with a Ranger contract? And I was like, Nope, I just want to be a shooter. A nug. Yeah. I want to just carry a rifle. So, um, that kind of got me to, you know, the military and then, uh, yeah, I joined in summer of 1997, you know, did the, the, basically the Ranger Regiment track, which back then was pretty fucking short. You know, I just did basic training, airborne school, and then what was RIP then. And when I went through RIP, it was three weeks, you know. I, I remember that, yeah, three yeah, weeks. I had a couple weeks of holdover there at Regiment, which kind of sucked worse than being in RIP. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, it was uh, December 97, assigned to 2nd Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis, uh, went to Charlie Company 2nd Ranger Battalion. Um. And then, man, I, I, I think back to that time period of how just blessed I was, you know, you know, as well as I do, like, especially in the soft community where you're like being barren to standards and all those things, like a lot of it is personality based. Like you have to be in a platoon or a squad when you're a new guy that like vibes with you, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, I was super lucky that I went to Charlie company first platoon, you know, it's kind of a, within the regiment, it's kind of a legendary platoon, the mad slashers, you know, um, and it was just, I fit in. Um, I wasn't the best at anything, but that was a that was a platoon that like was like, all right, this guy's good at this and this and this, and they like, they they really like lean on you for those things, and they they back off on the things you're not super strong at. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I was a as a ranger private, I was probably a buck thirty five, mm. you know, and not a quick runner. I was I wasn't a super athletic dude. Uh, playing sports through high school and stuff. I played ice hockey. So mm. the first time I ran over a mile was in basic training. Mm. Um, you know, being timed or, or anything like that. I obviously, I, I trained up and stuff, but it was like jogging and shit. But like, I didn't really know how to run. I had, my team leader had to coach me. Like, here's how you run. Mm. Right. Cause I didn't know. Um, but it was just a great platoon, like full of really good NCOs. Um, my platoon sergeant was, uh, his name's Jimmy Pippen. We called him uncle Jimmy, not to his face. Um, but he was like our dad. You know, he was a true platoon daddy, like, uh, hard away, super squared away, away, Mm. hard as hard as nails, tough, 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 but super fair, Mm. you know? Um, and you know, I, I think back to those times there, if I'd been in other platoons, I don't know that I would have been as successful. Um, I mean, like through my whole career, they, it was just such a great baseline. We had, we had him, we had, um, you know, this is 1997. There was not a lot of combat experience Mm -hmm. in the Ranger regiment at the time. But we had, you know, uh, two Panama vets in the platoon, um, two Mogadishu vets in the platoon, um, which at the time that was a lot. Yeah. You know, um, any Grenada vets? No, my, my first, uh, company first sergeant was a Grenada guy. Wow. Um, 83. Yeah. 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 And he was, 
that guy's a whole nother story. That's a guy that should be on your podcast. <laughs> He's uh, he was one of the first Americans. He did a his name's Larry Allen. He's uh, he did a he did the exchange with the British SAS like in the very early eighties. Had wow. to go through selection. It wasn't like a gentleman's club like exchange. It was like yeah, if you want to come, you go through selection. It was and his stories are wild. It's like that's that's the paper army, you know, not the computerized army. Mm-hmm. So they kind of forgot he was over there. So he was, <laughs> he was over in the SAS for like four years, you know, deploying. He was like combat action in Northern Ireland, combat action in Africa. And like, finally he was like, man, I, he was in E6. He's like, am I going to get promoted? Like, what the fuck? Like, I need to get promoted. I've been in the army a while. And then they're like, you're where? Like, so they're like, oh, you need to get the fuck back here. <laughs> So, but yeah, awesome dude. Get that guy on a podcast. Yeah. Uh, and he, he's just one of those guys that like the culture in that company was, was just amazing. It was like for a time that was very, you know, you look around the rest of the range of battalions at that time, it was a super peacetime thing. It was very like, you know, dog and pony spit and polish. Um, how fast you run is more important than how much you know or how you lead. There was yeah. a lot of that in mm-hmm. the range of battalion, but the culture in that company at the time was very combat focused, even though we didn't have really any real combat on the horizon. Mm. And it, it shaped who I was as a, as a ranger, soldier, leader, everything for the, for the remainder of my career. What do you, what do you think just uh, on that real quick? Cause I, what, what basic training company were you in? I was in uh Charlie two, five, eight. Of course. House of pain. House of pain. I was in, so we went through the basic training at the same time. I went, I reported September of 97 Okay. To Charlie 119. Yeah. And got to my unit after 15 weeks. I know we got it. Our our shit wasn't hard. And every time 258 walked by and said, House of Pain, shoot (laughs) to kill. I was like, damn, I want to be in House of Pain. (laughs) I don't want to be in Nails Kitchen. You know, it's funny. Like, people, it's kind of taboo to tell basic training stories, you know, as like an an accomplished whatever. Yeah. Dude. They smoked the brakes off of some bait. Like, it yeah. was hard. I, it was I had hard. a hard time. Dudes were trying to kill themselves. Guys <laughs> were going AWOL. Like, yeah. it was not easy. And I, like, again, I, I, I've i talked about basic training before and, like, you know, your uh, indoctrination in the military. Like, I was already there. Like, when they gave us our uniforms, I knew how to put it on. I knew how to blast my boots. I knew, like, what buttons you button. I knew all that stuff. I just knew. So, like, my bandwidth for the rest of the learning was, was like amplified, I think. Yeah. Cause I just didn't have culture shock. I was used to being surrounded by the military. I knew, Oh, I call that guy, Sergeant. I call that guy, sir. Yeah. Like there were no surprises for me. The customs and courtesies you didn't have to navigate. Right. Like, where guys are like talking with their hands and they're like, what are your hands doing? And you, you knew the, the deal. Yeah. I, I already kind of knew everything. Um, mainly for me, I was homesick. Yeah. You know, I miss my mom to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, Same. like I said, I wasn't, I was never top of the heap physically. Like I, I had, I wouldn't say a hard time, but like I was not like, you know, your normal 18 year old going to basic training that was just like, this is a breeze. You mm. know what I mean? It was a little bit harder for me. The only thing I really excelled in throughout my career was humping. I could put a ruck on my back and just walk yeah. and be fine and just, and crush dudes who were like really studs in every other area. Um, so that that served me well in Ranger Battalion, obviously. Well, where did that where did that culture come from? Because I I remember like I I got a option forty, and you heard my story. Like I got got deviated to the old guard because they screwed up kind of my contract. 
And I was 11 Hotel, supposed to be 11 Bravo. They screwed it up, so they tried to make it right. They literally crossed out 11 Hotel after I went through AIT and wrote 11 Bravo. But the catch was I had to go to uh, the old guard and put a 4187. So I went to airborne school, ranger school, while in the old guard. But I remember going uh, back. I was at Benning for something. And I had just gotten through ranger school. And one of my buddies, um, his last name was Barriotti. He was in 375. And I can't remember what it was, but I was around his... I, th- oh, I was hanging out at the 375 barracks. And I remember seeing the guys operate, and they were so combat-focused. And I was so jealous because I'm like, dude, this is why I joined the military. And they had nods. They had their machine guns. They were going th- cleaning guns, about to go on patrol for something. I'm like, damn, that's awesome. But back then in 90... This would have been 98, 99. Mm-hmm. Like... We didn't have an understanding what war was, yeah. but you guys were so combat focused. Where did that come from? From the culture? Was it was it the the G, or not GWAT guys? Was it the Moog guys? What, what was that stem from? Um, yeah, we did we did have. I mean, I think Somalia changed the culture in Ranger Regiment a lot. Yeah, um, and you know, it was a few years before I got there, but you talk to the the Mogadishu vets, which there were a number of them in my company, not just my platoon, and you know that that engagement, you know, the, or the multiple engagements that they had in Mogadishu, like really, I don't, I don't know, like they, they snapped the regiment into reality, right? Like they, they made some fucking mistakes yeah, and they really got it on. And then they like, okay, maybe it doesn't matter, uh, you know, how shiny our, our shower drains are and, and things <laughs> yeah. like that. Like, let's go ahead yeah. and like apply common sense in a lot of areas like, you know, uniforms slings i mean there there were guys that had not caught up yet you know senior ncos that they thought uniformity was important to the point where they asked you to have guys shoot right-handed that were left-handed it was it was insane but like the mogadishu guys kind of like weaned that out um the other thing was and it's something you know it's a good question because i haven't thought about this in a long time you know the regiment was a JSOC asset, right? And we were on Ranger Ready Force One, you know, a third of the year. So it was either first, second, or third bat was on RF1. Is that 18 hour? Yeah, it's an 18 hour sequence. Yeah. Um, wheels up anywhere in the world in 18 hours. And, you know, we from time to time got alerted and would do, do a spin up how, X number of hours into the 18 hour sequence and then get, you know, get stood down. Like, hey, something happened here. And we'd get called in jar shit and like so it was always you know even though there was nothing like happening like during the GWAT you knew you were going <clears throat> it was there that you know? that kept the readiness culture yeah on the on the forefront of the mind yeah, yeah. and you know you down to you you always had your bags packed your rifle was always zero there was no like oh, I'm just gonna put it up without zero in it uh. there's there was none of that there was no like hey I ripped my BDU bottoms I'll wait till like no it was like go take them to supply DX them and get new ones and put them in your D bag. Cause like you have to be ready to roll all the time. Interesting. So that I think had a big part in, you know, our, and, and the, and the real world mission that we had was, you know, they had happened like within our generation, right? Like Grenada dudes got alerted and blown out and jumped into Grenada. The Panama dudes got alerted and blown out and jumped into uh, Panama. So um, even the Mogadishu guys, that was like a, that was like a alert in our sequence and boom, go. So like, we knew that it could happen, oh. you know, and we we knew, and we prayed for it every day. Too, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, 
and you know the few like I mean without getting into it I got we got alerted one time taken out all the way to a you know an ISB rehearsal missions and then stood down so it was like we were close a couple times you know to those like get alerted blown out was Haiti mission. was that before your time Haiti was before my time yeah 95 my, or something like that uh, yeah yeah 95 yeah. And yeah and there were guys around for that you know they they got alerted that was know. close yeah like 275 I think went out to the USS Enterprise they were gonna mm-hmm. air assault and then um yeah third bat was gonna jump in and, and first bat I think as well but mm. so yeah that was close who was that Jimmy Carter ruined that yeah uh, yeah, yeah he so. screwed it up for everybody yeah. Yeah. let's 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 um as we get to Ranger retiring, because this is likely where we're going to see more of the understanding of how you got through different uh, difficult circumstances. Let's start off with uh, Ranger School, because um, you know I, I went to Ranger School not as a member of battalion, but as a regular army kid, and I was a PFC at the time, like many of the PFCs that were straight out of basic training, and it's where I really understood now the the theory and then the application right because there's a theory in 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 the manual the ranger handbook 27-6 it's like hey this is all the methodology but the practical application you still have to go through and i saw all the benefit and it sucked really bad like ranger school sucked i I felt like it was going to have these peaks and 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 low points i expected that but it didn't really peak for me it just was a a constant suffering and suck (laughs) Um, but I remember there's, there were circumstances where I had to like fight through adversity and difficult situations, whether it's basic AIT rip, which I am sure was hard. And then going into a ranger school, which you might've went down uh, a post deployment. When you look at that, what prepared you for just getting through that shit? Because like rip, you would trip a lot of Joe's in rip, especially that time where it's like. We only got three weeks to smoke the dog crap out of these dudes. Yeah. What were some of the tactics that utilized and, and do you have any examples of it? Yeah. Well, I mean, for Rip, I didn't I didn't really have any yet, man. Like uh I remember the culture shock of, mm. of Rip. Like you remember in basic training, you do a foot march, like a road march, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um they had they had you like you did like a four, a six, an eight, a twelve, and mm-hmm. a fifteen. And I remember on those road march days, like they kind of took it easy on you the rest of the day. Yeah. That? yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, "Oh, you can wear tennis shoes or flip flops mm-hmm. around," and like, and I remember we did, uh, and this is Rip, not Ranger School, but did a road march out to what they call Coal Range, which is where they like, it's kind of the you know, where where the suck happens for Rip, Coal Range. It's just a land nav course, mm. a big open field where they just you know smoke the crap smoke the brakes. Like yeah. they just they just make your life suck for you know, seven or eight days or whatever it was. And <clears throat> you do a six mile road march to get out there. And I remember coming into the little area where they have you put your rucks in formation and stuff. I was like, Whew. Oh man, this is good. Take a little break now. And, <laughs> and <laughs> we get in and, and, uh, you know, coal range is, uh, the spot where they kind of like do most of the stuff is, a. uh, a compass dead reckoning course. So it's a huge open field. It's like, uh, I guess like 1200 meters across by 1200 meters across. And it's got all those points. So you like do the thing where you put your poncho over your head and you take your compass and you just dead yeah. reckon tells you your drift. That's what that place was made for. Oh, interesting. But it's just an open field. And they, if you, if you talk to a regiment guy and you say hit the wood line, it's like a thing. 
So we're getting in, getting ready, and they're like, why are you taking your rucks off? Hit the wood line. And, you know, there's a bunch of recycles and stuff that know what that means. So they just start taking off towards this wood line. It's like 1,200 meters away. Oof. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I, like, start running after this dude. And I'm like, oh, man, this is a new, different world. Like, uh. this is this is hard. Um, and, yeah, like, I, at that point, I was so young. I, I think I did learn, you know, some resilience things by the time I got to ranger school because – Life in battalion was as a new guy was hard, um, and it was and it was a grind. You know what I mean? Like in Rip, you had you kind of had uh, these these horizons to run towards. You know what I mean? Like, all right, we're gonna be out here at Coal Range for you know five, six days, mm. seven days. I don't remember what it was, but it's like I know I'm going home on Friday. Like yeah. I know I'm going back to the bees on Friday, mm-hmm. um, and I could just kind of work towards that. We had one of my drill sergeants was a Ranger Regiment guy, and he taught. He was he was great. Uh, his name was Matt Walker. He he was later the three seven five CSM. Oh wow! Um, and he he would pull the rip guys aside from all the platoons and just say, "Hey, and just give us little pointers." Which was in hindsight, man, that was really cool of him. Like, real, yeah, in basic, yeah, That's in basic awesome. training. Yeah. You know, he could have been like, yeah, "Good luck, boys." Yeah, but uh, I'll never forget. He said, "Hey, just just quit tomorrow." Like that's what he said. I'll quit tomorrow after chow was his exact thing, mm-hmm. you know? And that was kind of my thing as a youngster. I'm like, I'll quit tomorrow after chow. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and also in, in everything I ever did, no matter what school or selection it was, the people who failed usually self-selected, mm. whether they failed a gate or they quit, there was some form of self-selection there. Like, Hey, I'm not going to put in the time and effort to study for this critical task or I'm going to quit or whatever. There was a decision that was a self-select. And my mindset was always, you may kick me out of here, but I'm not going to kick myself out. Mm. Right. I'm not going to self-select. So if I have, uh, you know, a test, I'm going to study until midnight and I'm going to pass that test. If I have, you know, a non-standard physical event and everybody's smoking my bags and I'm falling the fuck out, you're going to have to come here and put me on a truck. I'm not going to say, oh, I can't keep up. I quit. You know what I mean? So that was always my thing. It's like, I'm good with failure. I'm not good with self-selecting. The failure. Is that, does that come from your uh, childhood experience? Is that disappointing your parents? What, what was the mechanism for you not to tap out? Or was that just ego, your personal ego? I, I think a lot of it, I mean, it, it, it was not exactly a very like I'm not super proud. It was a lot of it was fear mm. of of failure. Like, hey, this is this has been this thing I've been working for this whole time. Like, what am I gonna do if I fail this? Like, I'm scared of that. Mm. Um but also, you know, I grew up, you know, Ranger Dad, like never quit. I quit one thing in my life. Like people <laughs> I always tell him I always give my dad shit for this. He's like, You quit one thing, you'll quit be a quitter the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I quit fast pitch baseball <laughs> uh, during tryouts. My it's the maddest my dad's ever been. At me. Oh. <laughs> and uh, it was the last day of tryouts and I didn't quit cause I wasn't good. I hated it cause there was this kid. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but it was like the first year of fast pitch, like not T-ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, I a young ass kid throwing a ball or throwing is it a coach. Pitch? No, it's a kid. Oh shit. Throwing yeah. a ball just, beaning me like I got hit with that ball like 20 times during the course of these tryouts and it sucked I was like 
all bruised up. I got hit in the head once and I was like, dude, that sucks. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm like not having fun. This is a game. You know what I mean? And my dad, Ooh, man, you quit one thing. You'd be quit of the rest of your life. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you're like, well, I quit. <laughs> yeah. I never quit anything since. Um, and you know, my dad always had us participate in sports. Every season there was a sport. There was, we were in a sport. Yeah. And voluntold. Voluntold. Yeah. And you had to see it through. I think, you know, I don't know if I've ever talked about it with you, but me and my brother Travis, um, when we lived in Germany, our, our school was grades seven through 12 because it was a DOD school. So we, he was a senior, grade 12. I was a seventh grader. Oh, wow. So we got to play on the same sports teams. Wow. Um, you know, I was, if you were in seventh or eighth grade, it was like intramural. You yeah. know, you weren't a varsity or junior varsity. It was intramural, but you still got to, you practice together and all that. <clears throat> and uh, my brother was a wrestler. And he's like, you should wrestle. And I was like, okay. Mm. That wrestling season is everything I've ever done. That wrestling season is the hardest thing I've ever done physically in my life. Wow. Our, uh, our coach was the base chaplain who'd been on the, uh, he wasn't on the Olympic team. He was on the Goodwill Games team for mm-hmm. the US, USA because the, the Olympics got, you know, boycotted that year because uh, of Russia invading Afghanistan. But that guy was a maniac. Like I, I looked and he had, he also coached the base. Like back then, bases all had sports teams, you know. I think they still may, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. less of a thing. But so he coached the base wrestling team with all the GIs that wrestled. So all those guys were like our assistant coaches. Mm. So you got like, you know, SF guys, 21, 22 year. It was a, it was in Germany. It was like, they oh, were okay. all grunts. They were all grunts. like infantry dudes or tankers. Yeah. But these were some tough dudes, you know, yeah. and they're like grown men grew up wrestling. Yeah. And then they're wrestling as adults. Yeah, like giant gobs of cauliflower on their ears, yeah. you know, um, <clears throat> smashing guys. little kids, just crushing us, man. Yeah. Like we had this small wrestling room and they would crank the heaters up and our uniform, they had a uniform we had to wear. We had to wear like thermals, sweats, put our hood on. We wore a beanie, put a hood on and cinch the hood down and you would weigh in and weigh out of practice. And if you didn't lose at least like two or three pounds, they'd be like, get back in there. And like guys would, I remember specific memory with my brother who was a senior. He passed out. Like he was a heat casualty passed out in practice. His name was Brent Causey. Coach Causey grabbed his ankle, opened the door, dragged him out, dropped him and just came back in. Didn't give a shit. Wow. Like you'd go to jail for that now. Even that's, that's oh, even yeah. like, yeah, you can't even do that in the military now. Yeah. Um, but I stuck with it. You know, I, I think that, re- that, that experience really showed me how to take my mind somewhere else. That porthole effect, like just my body keeps going. Your happy place. Find yeah. Your happy place. Finding my happy place. Um, I credit that with that. How, how old were you then? Shit, 12. Wow. And, yeah. and, uh, just, just for reference, his brother Travis, who was a ranger, who was my small unit tactics instructor in SF, and also we were on the same sniper team, um, has a experience. You could listen to his podcast on the Black Rifle Coffee podcast uh, under Travis Denman. So just just for your reference, yeah. And he was in Mogadishu. He did the rotation after the Mog. Got his tab. Got his combat scroll. Yeah. For Mogadishu. And then wound up being one of the best small unit tactics. Inst- I mean, he was the best small unit tactics instructor in the Q course, and he was my uh, instructor as well. It was a, a rad time, but that just for reference. Yeah, yeah. So you know that that whole thing. Then you know, I kind of 
once I, I was a little older and I kind of figured out, hey, this is like what I like doing, I started playing ice hockey, mm. you know, which that gave me a, a good amount of, I've talked about before, like violence inoculation, you know. Um, Smashing head to head. Yeah. Off, fighting. Fighting. You know, Austin. like, um, so when I got to battalion, you know, as a new guy, that was a huge part of the culture was fighting. Mm-hmm. Like you're the new guy and like another squad's walking across the quad and they have a new guy. Your squad leader's like, go beat the shit out of that other new guy. Mm. Don't let us down. So you just, <laughs> you just fight almost every day. You're in, getting in like a fight. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, all that stuff kind of like set me up for success of like. Um, I already was comfortable in some of those those environments, um, even though I wasn't necessarily the most talented person physically, I was I was. I was used to suffering. Um, mm. I was used to violence. I was used to pain. Um, and then, yeah. So like the the things in Rip were just. I was able to go to those happy places. It was a it was a, a winter class. It really sucked. We had pretty good attrition. I think thirty percent passed, um, which for Rip back then was was pretty good. A lot just a lot of dudes quit, and I just remember, um, you know, my whole platoon was Ranger contracts, so like. At 258 in basic? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we get out to Cole Range and dude just start quitting. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we've been talking about being Rangers for like our last, you know, months, five, five, six months months together. And you just quit like because you're cold. Like, it's going to, the sun's going to come out tomorrow, bro. Like, and you're going to be warm again. Mm. Um, And you're young with this introspect. Like, and while while others are falling to the wayside, you're kind of like, Hey guys, I, I'm being optimistic here. We're going to be okay. Like we're going to get through this. Are you coaching people at the time? Yeah, some. But mm-hmm. I also, having been like in kind of on the inside, I was like, "Hey, if I need to coach you, if I need to help you out, if I need to like pep talk you, I don't want you with me." You know? Yeah. Like there was like the if a dude was dragging ass, like, "Come on, man, let's go, let's go," that type thing. Um, but if a guy was like, man, I don't think I can hack this anymore. I think I'm going to quit. I'd be like, yeah, you should. Interesting. You know? um, because I, I, I didn't want <clears throat> that with me. And also another variable of like the selection process or really anything I've done in the military is like, I called it the quickening, you know, mm. when, it, when someone quits, it like gives me a little bit of energy, Yeah. you know? And I remember that first night in rip out at Cole range when I mean, it was like worst possible weather scenario. It's like 35 degrees and raining, mm. you know, just you wish it was 32 so it could snow, yeah. you know, or warm up. So cold, like almost the coldest I've ever been on. And dudes are just quitting left and right. And I'm like, guys, we're in a training environment. I know they're not going to let us die. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't. They'll get in trouble, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just uh, kind of under... The other thing is I knew that horizon I was trying to get to. I kind of knew what life would be like once I reached that point. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of people in that scenario, they're like, this is just what it's like. I'm just going to. This is life. This is life now. I don't want this. You know? Yeah. I can't remember who was telling me. It was like, uh, they said, whenever you're happy, no one thinks that that's going to be the way it is. They always think that's temporary. But when you're suffering, you always think that's going to be the way it is, right? Forever. Yeah, it's a and funny so, thing. Yeah, it's crazy. You, so you, you get to you get to battalion and you go to ranger school, and is ranger school just a different level of suck? And 
it's different. I noticed as a student there, for guys from Ranger Battalion, the stakes are higher. Yeah. Because you don't get to Ranger School, you're not going to be in Battalion. Right. And so I noticed the culture, the RIs understood that. And not to say they gave you guys slack because they didn't, but they they facilitated and, and worked with guys to like, hey, man, you pull your head out of your ass yeah. versus a regular Army kid or, or especially officers yeah. who are in the regular Army. They're just like sink or swim, right? Yeah. Um, how was that overall experience for you? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Definitely that was a thing. You know, I went there. I was a 19-year-old PFC. Um, went to a winter class, but I had been – <clears throat> you know, living and training in Fort Lewis, I was used to being cold, wet, miserable. Um, that wasn't a factor. The thing that really kind of sank in in ranger school that made it an especially hard experience for me was the academic aspect. Mm. Whereas, you know, everything else I'd done, it was like plop one foot in front of the other until it's over and you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Like watch your sector, plop one foot in front of the other, don't be late, don't be light, be in the right uniform, yep. and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Whereas <clears throat> Ranger School, I had to be a leader. I had to be a platoon sergeant. Mm-hmm. I had to be a platoon leader as a 19-year-old kid who hadn't been in charge of anything except maybe another new guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, looking back now, growing up, I, I definitely had ADHD. I was like, I couldn't... Book learning was hard for me, right? So I had really no <laughs> it's funny i had no grasp of the op order i had no grasp of tlps the day i graduated i, I still didn't know how to do it mm-hmm. um but what i did know how to do was be a new guy and and show my value so you know those those officers that were had been writing op orders for the last year of their life but they didn't really have any grit you know mm-hmm. if i carried 30 pounds of their shit they would write my op order. <laughs> I know? love that trade-off, man. Yeah, I did too. Oh, and, I love and it. And that was that made me feel good. It made me feel comfortable. Like, all right, I am doing my part, you know. So I think that that yeah, that was what really weighed on me in Ranger School was like I <laughs> I never really knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, as funny as it is to say that, like I, you know. I had to take, I had to do land nav three times. Like, I don't know if you remember, like in Darby and rap week, you do land nav. Well, they had us do it test retest. And then they were like, you go through Darby when everybody else comes back from the field in Darby. uh, They had the guys who double no go go out and do land nav. And everybody else got to go and like, Mm -hmm. you know, eat China buffet and shit. Mm -hmm. And, I went and had to do that. Like I was not really, I wasn't experienced. I was not an experienced soldier yet. Yeah. You know, I knew how to do what I was told. I didn't know how to operate on my own. I didn't know how to make decisions. I mean, I did, but not with confidence and not for a reason. Mm. It was, it was all on instinct, mm. you know? And, um, <clears throat> the, the team leader I had at the time who sent me off to school, um, he was like, when you're, when you're doing stuff, just, our squad leader's name was Jer- uh, was Sergeant Brown, Jeremy Brown, who works for uh, TACAS now. Mm. But uh, he was like, just do what Sergeant Brown would do. Like, whenever you're doing what's going on, just do what Sergeant Brown would do. <laughs> right? So that, to me, was like, be aggressive, be violent. Yeah, yeah. Right? And whenever I would just scream, 
or, you know, right side bound, left side hold, left side bound, right side hold. Mm-hmm. Like that got me through it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think the reflection is a lot of us that were that same age group. Because what class were you? You were 199. 199. So I was right after, right after you. Um, actually, no. 199, you were before me. I was 500. I Star, started in 99 yeah. wintertime and ended January of whatever. Or, yeah, January, February of zero. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was right after you. But that I remember that time period. Um, all the guys there that were our ages, 18, 19 years old, if you – they didn't expect I, – I didn't see that they expected us to be academic superstars. Yeah. Like I remember doing the Warno – and just reading the template and like nugging through it, but I was confident, I was loud, and I was aggressive. I was decisive, yeah. and those things got you through because they didn't they didn't have an expectation. You would understand like an officer would that was getting out of infantry officer basic course. And I noticed that all the guys who were young like us that graduated, and I went through uh, straight through, we did so because we demonstrated competency through confidence. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I mean, one of the times I only got one positive spot report, which they never, you know, give. And I, I didn't even know an RI was around, but uh, I was in a gun team. It was me, another bat boy, and a major who was a, who worked, uh, it's like his fifth time in ranger school or something. Yeah. You know, he was, uh, <laughs> he worked in the uh, Core S3 at 18th Airborne Corps. Um, I won't say his name because he was a turd, but <laughs> he was just dilly far fucking around, you know, in the patrol base, like rifling through his ruck. Look, I remember now he was looking for chow in his ruck. And I'm like, man, we're in Florida phase in ranger school. If you got food, you know it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. no, there's no like, oh, look, I found this thing. Yeah. Like, no, you know. And he just wouldn't stop looking for ru- food in his ruck. And I was, I just was like, you piece of shit. And I just fucking was like knife handing him as a fucking PFC, you know? And this RI walks up. He's like, what's your roster number? And I was like, ah, I thought I was in trouble. And he like came up, he gave me a, a minor plus spot report for, I don't remember what it was for. It was like motivating, motivating my peers or some shit. And he was like, a square away. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's, like you said, that's kind of what got you through. I, and I remember, you know, I got one go in planning and they made me like whatever squad leader was the guy who was supposed to make sure everybody kept awake and like did that. So like yeah. all I really had to do was walk around and put boot to ass. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't have to know anything. Yeah. Um, and then all my other patrols were for actions on because mm. I knew how to do that. Yeah. You know. Um, so you, you, you get through straight through. Yeah, I went straight through. Yeah, yeah. And, by the and, hair of my chin, yeah. chin, chin. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually. I mean, back then even it was rare to go straight through. I yeah, mean, everybody I went through from the old guard from the third infantry regiment recycled, and it just was a thing. The accepting of the reality was, you, you were going to recycle a phase, and yeah. to go straight through is a, a kind of a testament again to competency, but also some luck. I know something. Like, I felt lucky. Big luck, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And it's also an RI roulette thing, you know, and, and I look, I take back and I'm like, when I was a staff sergeant, if I saw me going through, I would like be like, oh, <laughs> you know, so uh, cute. yeah. And I remember, you know, one of the go, like my go, like my primary leadership go, I got in mountains. It was a recon and I checked all the blocks for this recon. 
I never even saw the objective. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> but he was like, yeah, you're in the right spot. I mean, it was like, you know, a tree line further. But I saw a road intersection. I was like, this must be it. And I just wrecked this road intersection. Just like 20 meters through this wood line, there was like an actual objective that yeah. I was supposed to recce. And he was like, why'd you stop there? I was like, well, I was a linear, linear danger area. I thought it would be stupid to cross that on a, rec- on a recon. Yeah. He's like, okay. And he, like, <laughs> and he gave me a go, you know? So that was like him being like, Bing, should I give this kid a go or not? <laughs> yeah, you're a go, you know, because I, oh. I, was, I was confident about it, yeah. you know, too. So, yeah, it was just um, the, the things that were, you know, besides the, the kind of academic aspect, I, I remember the things in ranger school were like, like I said, that grind. There, was, there wasn't really a horizon a lot of times, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it was tough to see it that long. Out. Yeah, like that, what, like <clears throat> that, that second field problem in mountains, it's like eight days, you mm-hmm. know, and like. I was again winter cloud. I just hit. It was like same shit, like thirty six and raining, horrible. And then at night it would drop below freezing. Mm. And I remember all the all the clothes in my ruck were wet. Mm. Everything on me was wet, and I just had no. I was out of food. I had nothing in my mind to cling to for comfort, like no goal, mm-hmm. and was just like, son of a bitch, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, tough. This sucks, and like being so cold on an ambush line that I'm like shivering uncontrollably. And then I stop shivering and then I'm like, Oh shit, that's bad. Yeah. You know, um, what, what were the thoughts? Were there any specific thoughts that maybe were in your happy place that allowed you to kind of just get through the next day? Or is it the tactic of like, Hey, I'll just quit after child tomorrow. Like what was it was that you didn't have no child. Yeah. It was, uh, for me, it was, I don't want to have to do this again. Yeah. You know, I don't want to start over. You know, it's kind of yeah. like, is this a little memory unlock when I, I had to go to RASP two to, to become a first sergeant. I remember Which is crazy. One of the one of the events they had us do and I was so like just salty poopy pants pissed. Yeah. There's a huge climbing wall at Benning. Like a rock climbing wall. Ugh. You know? It's like hundred feet tall or whatever. Yeah. And you had to climb that thing. And I was just like, I don't know how to rock climb, man. Like that, that that's a that's a skill. That's not yeah. like a gut yeah. through it. And my I was going up that thing and my forearms were just so engorged with blood but i was like two-thirds of the way up i was like if i if i give into this i'm gonna have to go up this again yeah you know so it's like toughness through laziness i guess yeah yeah you just don't want to have to do it again yeah um and then also there were you know at by that point in ranger school like by by that like second half of mountain phase you care about the guys you're with yeah, you build enough rapport with them. Yeah, and I had a couple of really great Ranger buddies. Like, we had kind of a trifecta Ranger buddy team. Is this a dude named DeBole, who was a BCO 275 guy, who I just met in Ranger school. And then um, a lieutenant from the Canadian Army, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Uh, oh, wow. Rob Riddell. And we were close, you know, and, like, yeah. we, we really gave a shit about each other. And... uh I didn't want to let them down, you know, Interesting. and yeah. And they treated me really well. Like I would carry heavy shit and I wasn't always super hungry. So like the ball was smart. He could, I, but I was very sleepy. I was, mm. a, I was a sleepy guy. 
I was a hungry ranger, not a sleepy ranger. Right. So I, yeah. I would give Duvall fucking food. I would give him like, I'd, every once in a while I'd like take a main meal and be like, here you go. And he'd be like, <gasps> <laughs> you know, I'm like, and then, you know, if he was pulling security and I was like dozing off, he'd just like watch out for me. Let me get a so cop right. a few Z's. Yeah. You know, so that was, that was a big thing that got, got me through ranger school. As well. The camaraderie was the first time that you kind of leaned on each other to get yeah. through a difficult circumstance. Yeah, yeah, in in ranger school for sure. It, we didn't have that in, in RIP. RIP was a very, like, that was... Yeah. Is that a indivi- more of an individual yeah. event? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So you, you, you get, let's talk about war, because you get propelled into war. You, our timeline is almost exactly the same as far as our military experience. And you get to 9-11, and you get into your first rotation of war, what was the taste of war as compared to the training? And did training set you up for all the resilience you needed in combat? Were you like, yeah, I get it now? Or were you like, oh, shit, this is very different? No, I mean, honestly, I remember thinking how easy war was. Hmm. You know, and there were there were some times like those early couple, first couple of Afghanistans where we were doing like old school ranger shit, like search and destroy, sweep and clear, whatever you want to call it, move into contact. Yeah. Um, we didn't see much contact, you know. I didn't. I didn't shoot my gun till my third deployment. Mm-hmm. But we were, you know, it sucked. It was. It was patrolling, you know. what I mean, and that did suck. But it was also like, okay, we are now the people who decide what's affecting us, right? So, if everybody's a drone, as a leader in combat, you can be like, you know, we need to fucking stop and we need to let dudes get a couple hours rack because dudes are droning. Mm. You know, whereas in ranger school, it's like they push you to get that. Like, yeah. So, you know, the priorities of work that you get graded on in ranger school, you actually get to decide what they are. You know what I mean? Mm. So you don't have to be like, all right, we're going to get in a clandestine patrol base here and everybody wipe down your rifles. Like, we haven't shot our rifles. Like, shut yeah. the fuck up. Like, everybody go to sleep. Yeah. And then when you wake up, eat chow. Mm-hmm. You know? So... It did show you like, but, but it did show you what those priorities work before mm-hmm. and how to decide when and where to use them mm-hmm. um, to where you could kind of give yourself a vote. You know, the enemy gets the last vote, obviously, if you're, you know, running and gunning for three days, which, you know, has happened to dudes like you're not going to be able to do that. But to the best of your ability, you can keep yourself comfortable. You mm-hmm. know, you can be like, oh, it's raining. Let's let's throw on our cortex, you know, yeah. like to kind of preserve the the fighting strength of your of yourself and your and your your unit you know um but i think it just showed you know ranger school and all those things shows you like hey here's how f- far you can get broken down and still operate mm. now it's up to you as a leader in combat to use all the tools at your you know disposal given the enemy situation to make sure that you're you're at absolute peak fighting strength whenever you do have a meeting engagement with the enemy. That's, that's so like I thought um, when you were saying that uh, I got issued you know the black polar tech yeah. top and it was it was super cool because if you had that you were in soft right. But I remember you know when you're going through training in ranger school you're limited on snivel because yeah. there's parameters that are set for you. But I remember putting that on the first like the first time putting that on and going. Oh, I don't have to be cold. Oh, I could take my hands and put them in my pockets. Yeah, that's different. So I'm not constricted by the institution or by the protocol. I could kind of free think through situations, and 
nothing is worse than suffering in ranger school because I've already been there. Yeah. And so this is like easy compared to that. Yeah. I mean, there were even there, there were, you know, training scenarios in ranger battalion that were absolutely way harder than anything I did physically in ranger school, you know, like stupid long movements, blah, blah, blah. but you know what? I could always reach into my like LC and pull out a starburst. You know, there was, yeah. there was always some little piece of comfort to cling to. <laughs> so funny. Um, that morale. Yeah. And, and I've, to this day, I, I, I hate, you know, like a lot of seals hate being cold and wet. I, I hate being hungry. Like that feeling you get in your jaw when you're like super hungry. Like I don't do that anymore. Yeah. yeah. So like humping a ruck all day long on like a caloric deficit is like a feeling that I don't like it's and not, it's, it doesn't feel good at all yeah, it's bad yeah and you know you probably i experience it in cedar school as well yeah painful. where it's like true hunger mm-hmm. is something that like you know you're reading history books and stuff like that will completely take over your mind as a yes. human being yeah and you saw it i'm sure you saw i saw it with guys that just couldn't handle it yeah they, they were would, they went out of, out of their mind they were literally lost yeah they you know the dumpster divers and, and yeah. shit like that. i'm like bro you're you're going to dive into the garbage mm. to get something to eat and you're going to ruin your career because mm-hmm. you're hungry. Like, okay. I mean, this does suck, but like have some self-respect. You know yeah. what I mean? I had a guy break into a semi truck during our seer evasion lane and the truck was running and he stole the dude's lunch, a container where it's a cooler full of chow. And I was like, was this planned? But I was like, you're going to get in trouble. But then when he came back with it, I'm like, I'm tearing all this shit up. I oh, am yeah. eating the crap out of this. Dude, it was yeah. amazing. You yeah. never got caught, but I'm like, <laughs> you, again, I'm like, we just ate like 72 hours ago. We're in an invasion corridor, and you're going to risk your career by breaking into somebody's vehicle yeah. to eat. Or get shot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, or get shot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that that's that's probably the hungriest I've ever been was on the invasion in Sierra. Yeah, yeah. same. Uh, we had my... My evasion team in Sear was awesome, though, because mm-hmm. um, that was before I went to Sear before it was part of the SF pipeline, mm. right? So like, my my evasion team was like I had a master sergeant from seventh group in it. You know, oh, well. he'd been in he'd been in group for like fifteen years, twelve years, whatever. Wow. Who he was a native Bolivian, like a jungle person. Oh wow! So like outdoorsy as shit, like could track, could do all this shit. It was just a just an amazing soldier, you know. And uh, you remember they have like the 82nd guys out there like or logistics people as your aggressors, you know? Yeah. So he's like came up with this plan. He like kind of reverse tracked the aggressors and was like, we're just going to circle and we're going to follow them. And that's (laughs) that's what we did. We just followed them and they had like a little like kind of a assignment to try and track us because they knew our evasion corridor. So he's like, we'll just follow them. And the whole time we're following, we're like picking up. MRE trash, picking up fucking all this stuff because it's like some, you know, logistics unit. They, they, yeah. they didn't know how to be in the field, so they're just like throwing shit away. Chow. Yeah. All over. Like picking up ooh, lemon pound cake. Sweet. You know? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that guy was awesome, man. Oscar Arandondo. If it, when you started experiencing, what was the first time that you experienced death or somebody getting killed? And then w- how did that change the game? Because in my own personal experiences, it's the feeling of this is real and and now it's not training it's not you know combat is not philosophy it's like this has consequence yeah i mean the first the first death i experienced was about 
I mean, it wasn't an enemy contact or anything, but it was about 10 hours after I got to, you know, that's, this is back. Yeah, this was like what April of Oh two, something mm-hmm. like that's the first time we deployed. Uh, we relieved first battalion at Bagram and we were basically, they didn't really know what to do with us yet as Rangers. So we were kind of like a QRF and we, you know, we were obviously support for TST raids for other units. Um, we later started going out and doing the kind of sweep and clear stuff, but get to Bagram back then Bagram was like, it was like being at a fob. There was like no running water. It was, it, mm-hmm. it sucked. Um, shitting in buckets, burning shit, all that. Well, they just put up a Hesco wall around our compound and there was a, I think it was a Norwegian EOD unit going through. And if you remember, Bagram was just, we first got there, it was full of mines yeah. everywhere. Cause when the Russians pulled out, they just carpet bombed it with mines. Um, so we're sitting there. It's like, we'd been there about, to, we got there like right when it got dark, but we were all wired up and like the sun's coming up. They start to go out and do their clear. And like, you know, from here to that wall over the Hesco, just boom. And some uh, Norwegian EOD guy got just got just vaporized by a mine mm. and kind of saw it. And you could kind of feel it. And we're like, oh, shit. Like, because they talk like, hey, there's a danger of mines. And but you're like, OK, whatever. I'm not going to step on a mine. And then you're like, whoa, dude just got smoked by a mine. Mm. You know, um, that rained it in and made it pretty, pretty clear we were in a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still, you know, not super, still didn't really have the, 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 I still didn't lose that sense of like invincibility, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a while. Um, and that really came from, um, you know, we had, we had casualties in battalion and stuff. Um, actually yesterday is the anniversary of the first guy. Um, who I was like really friends with that got killed in the GWAT. His name is Jay Blessing. Um, he was actually the 275 Battalion Armor mm. and was just out doing a, a log run, like going from, uh, we had a little fob in Asadabad up to Barrencote. He was driving, you know, just escorting a logistics train. And this was, you know, 03. It was before we did up armor. It was before we had jammers. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he just got IED, got blown up launched across the whatever i don't remember what river that Konar was river Konar river yeah yeah um but that was the first like friend and i like heard about that i was like oh shit man. name and they named camp blessing yeah after him yeah yeah um but really the first you know deaths that like i was on target for um we had some guys get shot and all that and but i did a deployment and uh summer of 2005 in Western Iraq. Um, and one of the other units out there was doing, did a day VI. They basically, the whole 60 just got tuned up. So this, this troop was pretty much non-mission capable. Um, so they put an RFF out. They were like, Hey, we need to get like, is that when the helicopter landed on the VI and they smoked the whole thing and everybody was a casualty. Yeah. You got shot in the mouth. Yeah. Both pilots were shot. Yeah. He had to use a rag to, I mean, he continued to, to serve, yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah, that none of those guys got killed. Yeah, none of them got yeah. killed. But through through the legs, only person didn't get shot was one of the medics, and he yep. treated everybody. Well, I remember exactly when that happened. Yeah, so they were they were kind of no longer you know fully mission capable. Yeah, so they, you know, my company was in Baghdad at the time. They put in kind of an RFF for six Rangers. So they kind of asked like, "Hey, can you send like good dudes?" So they, I was the senior squad leader in my company. 
they hit me up and they were like, Hey, pick whatever other five dudes you want. I just took five guys from my squad. You know, I didn't like make a super squad or anything, <clears throat> which they were cause they were awesome. Cause they were my squad. You know? Yeah. They listened uh, to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so yeah, we went out and joined that troop and we're basically part of that troop for the remainder of that deployment. For DVIs? Uh, no, we didn't. Just for hits. We didn't do any more DVIs after that. Yeah, vehicle interdiction for, yeah. sorry, I'm using acronyms. Yep. So no more, no more VIs, but we were, you know, we were the only strike force in Western Iraq at that point. Mm-hmm. And we were. That was a dangerous time period. I think yeah. for, for, for Joint Special Operations Command, that might in history, that year, might go down as one of the most, uh, casualty producing years yeah it was that's that that's the time frame i i can i can recall sitting in the in the in the talk with the other you know team leaders in the troop and we talked through the call out tactical call out like we were like oh, we're gonna do this we didn't have a name for it yet yeah you know we're like hey we're just gonna we're just gonna circle it get on bullhorns and i you know i'm a i'm a ranger i'm like what yeah what's what, that mean what, what are you doing yeah you know and so but yeah they They'd figured out a TTPs that we, you know, we'd blow the vehicle gate, come in, blow the PAX gate, and enter and clear the building. So they would just let us in little by little and then just, like, hand you your lunch the foothold, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that that trip is really kind of what, you know, I, I had my kind of, like, ranger ethos, but that trip is really what forged my kind of, like, warrior ethos. That's where, like... I got the taste of blood and I, I really like, I knew this was like, you, you fight, you know, you, you fight fucking dirty. You shoot them first. You don't give them a chance. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, it was, uh, that whole, that whole trip every night we were going out, we were in contact, you know, like hot HLZs, um, you know, enemy troops maneuvering on us, larger numeric force, like all those things happened on that trip. Um, but you know, I was with, I was with those guys, and it was, it was super humbling to be around you know guys of that caliber because I, I think back then you know the unit was a lot older, yeah. Um, a lot of those guys, if they ha- if they weren't there, they would be a platoon sergeant or a first sergeant in battalion, yeah. Or they would be a you know a team sergeant or a, or a company sergeant major in SF. Mm-hmm. Um. So it was all super experienced guys who were like gods to me. Yeah. Um, and the first kind of like experience with death on target that I was on um, was a guy named Steve Langmack. Mm-hmm. Who's, uh, I remember Steve. Yeah. Seventh group guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Previously a 175 guy. Yeah. He was my pre-ranger instructor. Wow. And when I was in pre-ranger, uh, I was a little rascal, you know, mm-hmm. and I froze his PC. And gave it to him the day we went to Darby. And he was like, you better fucking pray you pass ranger school and I don't have to come back through here. <laughs> and he was like mean. Like, it wasn't like, yeah. oh, this is going to be funny. Like, he was mean, man. Yeah. And uh, when I showed up out there to Al-Assad, he was the new guy in the troop. Mm-hmm. And he knew he recognized me still. You know, that had been, what, four years earlier or whatever. And he was like, he smiled. He's like, some bitch. But, like, they kind of made him our sort of handler you yeah know? so like all the sort of bitch work that they had we did together so he but he used that as like a learning uh opportunity so we built all the charges with him you know mm-hmm. we rehabbed all their 
all the fast ropes, we rehabbed fast ropes, we hung the fast ropes, we, you know, retaped the doors of the helos, like all the little things that the new guys had to do, like Steve Langmack and us did it. And then, you know, he was also, I mean, we had, I had a great relationship with, with that, that troop. I knew, you know, the troop commander, he'd been a PL in my company. Um, so like all the butt sniffing was not really there. And I, I very much felt like I could chime in and, but there's also a level of comfort that you just don't have with those guys. Like, Oh man, this guy's like a God to me. Whereas Steve Langmack was like, he was that, like, I can really look up to this guy. He's a great mentor, but it was also, he was also approachable and like you accessible. Talk to, talk to him every day, multiple times a day. And, uh, yeah, when he was killed, it was like, holy shit. You know, um, he, so was Steve the one he, he got shot in the nods the night before. Yep. And survived that. Yep. And then it happened again the following night. Was he shot off the little bird? Or, or no, no, he, he shot on, a, on target. He was on a quad. That Oh, yeah. The When he got yeah. shot through the nods? Yeah. Yeah, That's so right. um, we kind of split the force. We had guys go in early um, on quads and stuff, and they did a hit deeper into the town. And when they were target secure and heading back, we went and hit another target, uh, landed on the X on it. And as they were driving up, they got ambushed as they were shooting at our helos. It was pretty, it was really complex. Um, and that was, that was one of the, that was actually the first time I heard the radio call hot LZ. And I, in my I was like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah. I, was like, I was like, oh, I'm LZ. in the numb, man. Like I've got my feet dangling out of a 60, you know, yeah. and I'm like going into a hot LZ. Like this is what I signed up for. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, I remember they came up, they did a link up with us after we had target secure and yeah, he'd gotten shot like right to left through his nods driving and everybody's like, luck, luck, luck. Yeah. And then I don't know if it was the next night or the night, but yeah. I, it's foggy, but yeah, um, it was one of those things they sucked, sucked the guys into the foothold and then just, you know, ambushed. You know, the only the thing that took the initiative back was the canine and, and a lot of frags, um, but yeah, that was that was wild, and that 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 whole I mean, that target we we exfilled under fire on the target he was killed on, um, and it just showed you like doesn't matter how good you are, like this shit's dangerous. Um, but lead with violence, you know what I mean? Lead with like ultra ultra violence in that in that operating environment. Um, what was the mood of the troop and you guys? Was it sombering and then it's like time to go to work? Because I, I know whenever I, we've taken casualties, whether it was task force or our own team, um, it, there was a sense of like, hey, this is part of what we do. It's time to get back to fucking work and kill bad guys. Yeah, it 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 put a hot poker in our ass. I mean, we were already – something I'm really proud of on that trip and, and those, those dudes I worked with was like we were extremely aggressive. Like put the – bad guys on their heels you know we we called them the sieges like we would pick a spot like rawa or al Qaim or uh arabit arabit was where steve was killed and we were like we're gonna siege this so we're just gonna hit this bitch every night for like five days we're gonna hit it until they stop coming out to fight you know um and one of the nights after that our intel guy who who was awesome um, we kind of did our mission planning 
we were just, you know, there's that lull. You, you do your mission planning, you do your con op, you kind of do your brief. And there's like, you know, 40 minutes before you have to get jocked up and get on the birds or whatever. And in that time, Intel guy comes in. He's like, hey, hey, he, he asked for the troop commander. He's like, come on. And he like looks up at the, uh, the screen. He's like, they just pulled a tactical up. And they've got like, you know, armed roving guards around this. And I remember the, the troop commander was like, guess we better bring our guns then. That was his answer, you know, and I was like, fuck, yeah, you know, I belong here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've experienced other leaders through the years that would have gone ghost white there and been like, mm-hmm. you know, but he yeah. was like, no, let's go kill it. Those look like dudes that need to be killed. Let's yeah. go kill them. You know, I missed the mindset and the, the feeling of that belonging, that culture of, I would just say a joint task force because all the action arms, which eventually became TF-16, TF-17, which you guys set the stage and the groundwork. I mean, cooperating with special missions units and developing that rapport and relationship, so much so that Stanley McChrystal on down were like, yeah, this is the thing. We need to just build this machine, execute these action arms, and let them kill everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I we, we have to cut the podcast because we're, we're keeping it to an hour, but we're going to make this, I just officially called it, we're going to make this a two-part series with Jericho. We'll do the first part, which is kind of his first experiences in the the lead up at the very beginning of the GWAT and kind of experiencing those tragic circumstances and, and the resilience you needed. And then we'll continue this because that's only the beginning, right? I assume. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that I think gave me the taste mm-hmm. and, and I don't want to call it the addiction, but yeah, I, I loved it. I loved going out and putting those dudes. Yeah, in the dirt. Into the dirt. Yeah, like not to sound cheesy, but yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it's like it is a thing. I'm actually uh, very intrigued to talk about that because I'm reading Dopamine Nation right now, and a great book that talks about this addiction to these different things. But at that time, in that time time period, there was an addiction in the GWAT to mission sets and going after bad guys. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that more. Uh, Jericho, uh, where can people find you just on social and stuff? Uh, I am Laidback Berserker on Instagram, L-A-I-D-B-E-R-S-E-R-K-E-R. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just look for me on all Black Rifle channels, Black Rifle Coffee, you know, uh, YouTube and um, stuff like that. Awesome. Thanks for being on the podcast for um, Mission Resilience. Episode one with Jericho Denman. Um, we'll get to episode two or part two of this. We just can't stop this. We, there's too much juicy stuff in here for you guys. I appreciate you guys. You guys can see all the links below for Jericho. Uh, also subscribe to the Black Rifle Coffee podcast if you haven't done so uh, already. I host a, a series called The Mike Force Presents. And um, you can see all the stuff there. Um, I appreciate you. Until next time. Peace out, guys. Awesome.